Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. I just want to know if anybody would raise their hand. I want to know who ordered up yesterday's weather uh, because it was wonderful. How many of you got a chance to get outside? Anybody forced to be cooped up inside yesterday? I feel sad for you. It was a beautiful day. My name's uh, Mike Bickley. I serve as lead pastor here at Journey Bible Church. And as a church, we long to see people get connected to Jesus in a vibrant personal relationship. And then we long to see them growing and maturing as a disciple of Christ and learning how to serve uh, in making disciples and also how to reach out um, to their lost friends and neighbors and coworkers and learn how to take the gospel to those that are without hope and need it the most. And, And we believe that Our role as a church, connecting and helping people grow and serve and go uh, to reach the lost, is something that we are to continue until Christ returns, until his kingdom is fully uh, established here on this earth. And so as the salt and the light, our, our desire is to help the people living in darkness and bring them hope. Our job is to introduce them to Jesus and his ways. So, one of the ways that we equip you as the body of Christ who lives in the midst of our broken and lost world is by studying the Bible together, by taking time to understand God's truth as he's revealed his will to us in his word. And so, oftentimes, uh, when we gather on Sunday mornings, we don't just declare the truth of God's word, we take time to walk through passages in depth hoping that that will help us to understand who we are and how we are to live. But even more importantly, it declares to us who God is and what his design for our lives are. Right now, we're studying the book of Ephesians, which is a a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a church in a town called Ephesus. Ephesus was a thriving commercial city in the Roman Empire, a key strategic city. Uh, a place that had some of the had one of the seven wonders of the world. It it was a port city. It was uh, connected to the Roman highway system, and so it was a, a key place for people from every part of the world to travel to and to travel from. And Paul writes this letter to them while he's experiencing Roman imprisonment, awaiting trial. Um, and, and so he is doing a couple of things in this book. I'm going to give you just a, a quick overview of the whole letter if you're new to our series in Ephesians. And in this letter, the, the letter has six chapters, and they break evenly into three chapters about our identity in Christ and then three chapters about our lifestyle for Christ. 
Those first three chapters are all about the, the spiritual blessings we inherit by becoming a follower of Jesus. These are theological truths that are a foundation on how we are to see ourselves, how we are to see God, and how we're to see each other. Then in the second half of the book, he moves more to the practical, the exhortations, the commands, the way that you and I are supposed to live in light of who we are. He calls it walking worthy. This week, we are beginning chapter two. Chapter one was all about the realities that belong to us because of the work God did in salvation. And we studied those over the last five weeks. Now we're moving to chapter two. Instead of realities, it speaks to the revolution that has taken place. Because when salvation comes to a believer, radical transformation happens. And there are four of these that we're gonna explore over the next four weeks. This morning, from death to life. Next week, from wrath to workmanship. The following week, from hostility to peace. And then lastly, from strangers to family. Then we'll take a, a couple of week break um, from the book of Ephesians uh, as we uh, do New Year's and Christmas. And then we'll come back to it uh, in January. And so this is, this is where we are going. And this morning, I, I want for us to study this movement, this transformation that takes place from death to life. Another way of saying this is from people who are condemned, dead, to people who are saved, who are alive. So if you don't mind, would you stand with me? I'd like to read um, our passage this morning. And out of respect for God's word and also to get you moving again a little bit before we sit down for about 20 minutes, I'd like to read this passage. And uh, you're going to see in this passage how these two, there's two concepts and we'll, we'll bring these out. So look for the idea of death in the first half of the passage and then the concept of life in the second half of the passage. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated in, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, sometimes when we read your word, um, we jump over things and, and stuff just kind of floats by and we don't notice it. Then there are other times that stuff stands out and it grabs our attention and it begins to change our thinking, our perceptions, and even our actions. I pray that today your word would help us to understand reality differently 
and that we would live differently as a result. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You know, um, this uh, last uh, couple of weeks um, over Thanksgiving and leading up to Thanksgiving, we had one of our scrapbooks out from one of our kids, and it basically told the story of their life from birth in pictures, you know, through uh, early uh, toddler years, the terrible toddler years, into elementary school and middle school and high school and college and young adulthood. And if we had it out a little bit longer, I guess we would say it might even, you know, if we finish it, take them all the way to death. Not a very great thing to say about a scrapbook, right? But that's usually the way you and I think of time. We think of time beginning with life at birth and time ending with the aging process culminating in death. Paul does a reversal here. He says that's the wrong way to think of keeping time. Actually, he says time starts with us at birth being dead and moving to life. And so that's where we're going this morning, is we want to see that there's a revolution that's contrary to the way normally in our humanity we look at things. And that revolution is, is that we were dead and God made us alive in Christ. So we want to look at two things. In verses one through three, we want to see how our condition is given to us apart from Christ in these verses. Described fully and factually, but also in a way that resonates with reality. And then secondly, we want to see this movement of salvation that God did by grace, making us alive in Christ. So apart from Christ, we're dead. In Christ, we are alive. So let's begin with that first one, our condition apart from Christ. And I'm going to cover three things here. And the first one is this, is we are are dead. So if we are apart from Christ, then we are a person who the Bible calls being dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul is talking to them as new followers of Jesus who have left an old stage of life being dead into a new stage of life being alive. And so he is talking here about the condition of every person apart from Christ. They are dead. Not physically dead, but spiritually dead. And notice he traces that this death comes from two words, trespasses and sins. Now, I don't think that he's using these as two separate categories. Oftentimes, what an author will do in the scriptures to give you a full scope of something, he will use several words to describe this one concept. The idea of a trespass was a deviation from the right path. It would be crossing over a boundary you weren't allowed or shouldn't cross over. It was to take the wrong direction. Sin was an archer's term. It meant to miss the mark. It meant for the arrow to fall sharp, short of the target you were aiming at. And so a sin was anything that fell short of God's standard. So these two words, trespasses and sins, 
are metaphorically used to describe anything that's intentional or unintentional, that's active or passive, that's an action or an attitude, that's an omission of doing right or a commission of doing wrong. It's basically telling us that anything that misses the mark of God's standard of perfection, anything that deviates from God's expressed will in his word, anything that deviates from the moral boundaries that God has set forth, the Bible calls sin, and trespasses, and then notice what happens as the result of that. You and I are dead, spiritually dead. When we commit actions or attitudes that deviate from God's standard and God's direction, then we are separated or alienated from God. A little bit later in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 18, Paul is going to describe this as living in darkness with hearts that have been hardened, separated from God and his life. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how comfortable you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how famous you are. If you are apart from Christ, you are dead. You may be a great athlete, you may be a great scholar, you may be a great leader, you may be a great actress, you may be a great business person. And the question would be, well then, if I'm great at all those things or any one of them, how can I be dead? Well, the Bible tells us that all we are doing is glorifying our humanity by our successes. But God weighs us not on our human successes, but on our spiritual condition. And people that are apart from Christ are deaf to the word of God. They do not listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're blinded to the truth of Jesus Christ. They have no hope that would cause them to cry out, Abba, Father. They have no desire for the community of God's people, no love for God, no fear of his holiness, no amazement of his glory. The Bible describes them as dead as unresponsive spiritually to God as a corpse is unresponsive to touch. They are the walking dead, created by God, but living without God, alienated and separated from God. Actually, if we trace the theme of death through the Bible, we find that death overlaps not into just the condition of our heart or, or the way we think and perceive the world. It impacts our relationships dramatically, bringing about death not only with ourselves but with others. So we are dead, and then second, we are enslaved in verses 2 and 3, we see that we're held captive, that we are confined and in bondage. We're enslaved to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh. And, and in case you're surprised, the worst kind of captivity is the captivity of ignorance. And by that, I mean not even knowing that you are held captive. Here's what the verses say. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath 
like the rest of mankind. I want you to see some of these phrases here because, you know, really, for you and I, uh, we, we, we look at these things and, and maybe it's been a while since we've experienced salvation and we don't remember these things. But I want you to notice the first one. He says, following the course of this world. In other words, uh, the world, I don't know how many of you remember, in the Bible, the world is actually the system that is set up by Satan to oppose God and his truth and anything that is holy and righteous and anything that has to do with God and his kingdom. If God's light, then the satanic world is darkness. If it's truth, it's deception. And so the world, the course of this world, the manner of this world, the way of this world, it's living without reference to God. And anytime God is taken out of the equation in society, you have division, oppression, tyranny, hate, prejudice, and poverty. You have every kind of morality. And what the scary thing is, in the society, with no reference to God, they will often blame those things on the people of God. And so, if you're dead, you're following the course of this world. You're also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul is specifically speaking of the devil or of Satan, the prince. The word prince is literally ruler. He's the ruler of the power of the air. I don't want you to see that word air and think of what we, we breathe. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual domain. He's talking about a spiritual sphere. That sphere being what we call in the Bible the domain of darkness. The prince is the one in charge of the demonic host. The principalities and powers that exist to oppose God and his kingdom. Notice the evil one is at work in disobedient people. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a tempter. He's a destroyer. And we are not just led by him in his forces, but we are actually pulled along and enslaved to him whether we realize it or not. You know, there's, a, there's a, a lot of people in this world that want to tell you there isn't a personal devil, that there isn't a demonic host, and there isn't evil. Of course they want to tell you that. Because they want you to be ignorant of the reality that people that are dead are not only following the course of this world, they're following the prince, the ruler of the power of the air, the realm of darkness. Then I want you to notice third, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, when you see that word flesh, don't think of like uh, the skin and the muscles that are on top of our skeletal system, okay? That's not what he's talking about. Spiritually, the flesh refers to man's fallen nature. 
It refers to the fact that you and I are self-centered and that we are by nature, we've inherited a nature that wants to sin, that craves sin, and will eventually have those yearnings lead to sin. The passions of the flesh, notice, are both the desires of the body and the desires of the mind. And so both the flesh corrupts our thinking and the flesh corrupts our body. Notice um, that you and I, if you go back to Genesis, uh, which is where our understanding of the formation of man comes from as created in God's image, we, we had desires before the fall in Genesis 3, and they were good desires. We had, we had desires uh, for food. We had desires for sleep. We had desires for community. We had desires for sex. And all of those things were good. They were healthy. They were okay. But then when Genesis 3 happens and man and woman sin, then death comes. That's when death entered into the equation. And alongside of that, from there on out, the flesh, not the skin and the muscle over the bones, but the spiritual substance that you and I inherit in our soul is now corrupt. And by nature, we're not good people. By nature, you and I are sinners. Not just in action, but in attitude and thinking. And so now our good desires become gluttony become control, become laziness, become lust, become pride, and become greed. And by our own effort, by our own wisdom, and our own determination, we can't, we, we can't break away. We're dead. We can't change the status in our own effort. We were enslaved and oppressed from without and within. The devil from without the world from without, both of them seeking our destruction, our flesh within, its cravings and distorted ideas and thinking, twisting our minds and setting us adrift so that we'll blame everybody else but ourselves for our sin. Like a robot, we carry out the passions of our flesh, moved forward following the devil and the world. And this leads to the third statement of our reality apart from Christ. We are condemned. By the way, I saved this really special, encouraging message to be right after Thanksgiving. <laughs> we are condemned. We are sentenced. We are convicted. We have no hope of acquittal. We've been judged and found guilty. The scripture says that we were, by nature, children of wrath. And then Paul makes sure that these Gentiles and a few Jews that he's writing to understand that he's grouping everybody together. All of us, like the rest of mankind, every single human person. Is by nature a child of wrath, whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're religious or a pagan, whether they're a citizen of the Roman Empire or an immigrant, no matter where they come from, they are by nature a children of wrath. 
Now, the word wrath is something that we probably should stop for a minute because when we think of wrath, we think of anger out of control. We think of a hothead. We think of someone flying off the handle. We think of someone that's doing something out of spite or meanness or nastiness or payback. But in the Bible, when wrath is attributed to God, it is the personal, righteous, constant hostility of God toward evil. God refuses to compromise with the devil. God refuses to compromise with the world. And God refuses to compromise with our flesh. So you and I are under condemnation. We are deserving of the death sentence and spiritual separation from God for all eternity because God is against all evil. So God's desire for wrath, though, must never be divided out from his love. You must see the two held together. This is very important. As a matter of fact, in the next few verses, guess what we're going to find is the motive for him reaching us when we are at his worst. Anybody want to guess what four-letter word that starts with L might be that motive? It's going to be love. See, without wrath, love is nothing more than divine enablement of evil. You must have the counterpart. And that's why God is a God of wrath, righteous and loving in his execution of evil. And notice it says here by nature. And I think this is really important because in a minute he's going to tell us that we are children of wrath by nature, but we're saved by grace. So he's setting up the fact that we have a human condition. All of us, since Adam, the Bible tells us we've inherited a nature that chooses sin and as a result of those choices, experiences death. Now listen, that does not mean you're as bad as Charles Manson. That does not mean that you're Adolf Hitler. The Bible does not say that all people are equal in the evidence of sin that they will display in the world. What it says is that all of us are equal in that none of us will ever be able to choose by our own strength not to be a sinner. Turn to your neighbor, look him straight in the eye and say, you're a sinner. If it's your spouse, wink while you say it. Because the reality is you can't choose otherwise. And this is the condition that we find ourselves in apart from Christ. So I want, this is a real simple application, but we as a church need to remember so many times people go to church and that's a good thing. It has at least been until modern days. It's been accepted. Oh, that person's a churchgoer. That's a good thing. And most people see going to church kind of like being a Christian. It's a good thing. And, and usually, really, it's a better thing because we were good people to begin with, and now with Jesus, we're better people. I want you to know that that's a common thinking oftentimes of people in the church, and it's wrong. It's dead wrong, pun intended. This is not salvation from a good life to a better life. It is salvation from death following in the steps of the prince 
the ruler of the domain of darkness, caught up by your flesh in captivity and enslavement to sin, condemned by your nature to the outpouring of God's righteous indignation against the evil of your life. This is the status of someone apart from Christ. Now, I am so glad we have a second half to go through this morning. Because now we know where we are. We can more fully understand God's compassion shown to us in Christ. And we're going to see two things. The work, what he did, and the why, his motives. So look with me at Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us to live together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is such a, a beautiful verse here, verses four and five. And the first thing I want you to know is, is this phrase that comes right in the middle, right between the condition of man apart from Christ into the grace that leads to our salvation he says that man in that state of being dead is there by his own doing, but God. I, I love, uh, a friend of mine repeats what his theology professor called this buttology, the great adversative, but God. Our condition as sinners was pervasive, but God. We were dead, but God. We were enslaved, but God. We were condemned to wrath, but God. We were hopeless, and our status was catastrophic, but God. We were dead, waiting to experience eternal damnation in hell, but God. God is the one who takes the initiative. And I want you to see why here. One, he's merciful. Two, he loves us. And third, he's full of grace. You know, when you and I think of God's love and mercy and grace, we need to see these as motives that move in reverse of the kind of people we were, that we were dead that we were hopeless, that we were helpless by ourselves. So if I lined every one of us, let's say we went on a little uh, field trip this afternoon and we drove to the Mississippi River and I had everybody stand on the edge of the Mississippi River and all of us had only one task. All we had to do was jump across the Mississippi River. Now, some of you, um, uh, you know, like let's say me, are gonna get two or three feet off the bank. And there's, there's a few of you that are younger and a little more spry, and you might get 10 feet off the bank. I just want to know, do we have any long jumpers in the room? Okay, we got one long jumper. I'm going to just say you can get 30 feet out into the water. Now, let me just ask you a question. We got two or three feet. We got 10 feet. We got 30 feet. You're at least 10 times better than I am, and you're at least three times better than the next really great athlete. But compared to one shore to the other, how many are going to jump across the Mississippi River? Nobody. See, that's what this is telling us, is that we like to compare ourselves to other people. Our standard, we take a really bad person, and we're just barely better than that. 
And we say, I'm good to go. And then we realize that the standard for comparison of humanity is not another human, it's Jesus Christ. And we realize that we all fall short. But God. And notice, it's the love. The fact that he sets his affection on us in a sacrificial way apart from feelings. That's what true love is. True love is setting yourself up to show affection in a sacrificial way for the benefit of another in spite of your feelings. Love is devotion, not an emotion. That's tweetable or whatever they want to say, right? It's true. Love is not based on our feelings or our emotions. It's based on our devotion. And God loves us while we are sinners. God loves us while we are enslaved. God loves us while we are condemned. He chooses us. So grace, what is grace? When you get grace, what does that mean? You're getting something you don't deserve. When you get mercy, what, what's that telling you? It means you're not getting what you do deserve. Do you see the whole package here of what God is doing? He's giving us what we don't deserve. He's withholding what we do deserve, and he's doing it all out of unconditional love. He's going to rescue us. He's going to save us, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace, and we'll read next week, because of faith. Salvation and rescue comes from sin and death and enslavement and condemnation. So church, I got a challenge for you this week. If you look at the word love in, um, in the book of Ephesians, it's used 14 times. If you look at the word grace in the book of Ephesians, it's used 12 times. What would happen this week if you just looked at all of those verses, those 26 verses, and you just reflected on what they teach you about grace and love? about God's grace and God's love and what they might tell you about how as a person who's experienced God's love and grace, how you might become more gracious and loving yourselves. Maybe we should take some time to reflect on the reality that God's great love, his rich mercy and his immeasurable grace have been poured out on you and I. We also see this compassion and what Christ has done for us. And I just want to run through these. I want to touch on these. I think they're pretty obvious, but there's kind of four things in this passage that he touches on that are really majestic. And I want to just show you the work that's doing place. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, number one, he made us alive. He brought us from death to life. And then notice, by grace you have been saved. He raised us up. So two is he raised us up with Christ. This, he's saying that we joined Christ in his victory over sin and death. And then third, he seated us with Christ 
in the heavenly places. So we not only are raised up with Christ, we're, we ascend with Christ to his throne room. You and I are a part of the work, not only of his death, the work not only of his resurrection, but we get the benefits of his ascension. And we now are seated with him. And then, if you were to look at those two phrases, raised up and seated, the power, if you go back to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, you would see where he was talking about the greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then he talked about the working of that when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I want to remind you that that same power that worked on Christ's behalf is the same power right now working in your salvation that has raised you and seated you. And then fourth, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So what he's saying here is God not only has made you alive, he's not only raised you up, he's not only seated you, you're a trophy he's gonna show off in the coming ages. From here on out of your salvation to all eternity, you and I are trophies of God's grace. John Stott is an English theologian, and he went to Cambridge. And at the time he was at Cambridge, uh, one of the, um, uh, I forget the exact term that they give um, for the person who's in charge of the hall, this section of the school that you're a part of. But the guy retiring was a, a Reverend Paul Gibson. And uh, Ridley Hall, as a, as a out of respect for his service uh, to Cambridge, unveiled at his retirement ceremony a, a painting, a portrait that had been made of him that would hang in the hall. And, and it, it was a beautiful portrait. And at that presentation, that retirement, um, uh, Reverend Gibson said of the portrait that in the future people would not ask, who is the man in the portrait? The painting was so beautiful, he would, they would ask the question, who painted the portrait? They would soon forget about him, but they would wonder who painted the portrait. And that's the idea in this passage as we get to the ends of these verses. It's, it's not that people are going to look at you and wonder, who is that person? They're going to look at you and I from death to life, and they're going to go, who did that? That's the reality. Our newness in Christ from death to life ought to be so radical that when people see us as a trophy of God's grace poured out for the riches of his mercy because of his great love, when they see us moved from death to life, when they see us moved from condemnation to salvation, when they see us moved from captive to free, they say, who did that? And hopefully ask, where can I get some of that? And so church, take time this week to thank God for the work he's done inside of you. He made you alive. You can't do that. Only he could do that. And then second, would you join us 
a week from Monday, we know that people held captive by the devil, people following the course of this world, people enslaved to the passions of their flesh can only be set free by God Almighty. And we know that means we as a church need to be praying for that to happen. So a week from Monday, we're going to have a night of prayer as a church and begin a more regular habit of spending time asking God to move in powerful ways. There was a man during the Great Awakening that showed up at one of George Whitfield's sermons. And he was convinced that George Whitfield was a hoax and he needed to be hurt. So he showed up uh, at the tent for the revival meeting where George Whitfield was preaching on John chapter 3 and Nicodemus and the idea of being born again. And he stuffed his pockets full of large stones and made his place Uh, made himself to a place where at the end of the sermon, he could strike Whitfield with his stones. After the message came and his heart was changed, he emptied his pockets in front of Whitfield and he said, I came to hear you with my pockets full of stones to break your head, but your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. Church, let's be praying. For the God who makes the dead come alive. To do that among our relatives, our friends, our coworkers, our, co- our, our fellow students, the people we sit on the sidelines with, the people we stand in line with. God wants to release the captives. He wants to forgive the sinner. He wants to break the bondage to the world, to the devil into the flesh. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great power and the reality that the things we just talked about, the condition apart from Christ is not true of us, but it should sober us to the reality that many people are living in that condition right now. God, we thank you. We praise you for the work you've done in us. Now would you use us to bring the gospel hope to those who don't have it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.